Turn in your Bible, if you would, to Philippians chapter 4. And while you're turning there, let me just start out by saying this. I know that um, many of you have perhaps learned more about me in these past six and a half or so years than you ever thought you would learn about the preacher. But here's a tidbit you didn't know. When it comes to castles or houses or apartments or office buildings, do you know what fascinates me the most? Secret passages. <laughs> I love them. It, it fills my heart with an inordinate amount of joy. And I don't know why it is. I'm not sure, um, I'm not sure what it is about me. But if we go to a historic castle um, or a flat somewhere in the middle of the city, I don't care about the decor. I don't care about the history. I don't care about who was murdered there or who lived there or whatever. I just want to know, is there a secret passage? If your home has a panic room, don't tell me. Because you'll think that I came over to your house to have dinner, but really it was to go inside your panic room and just be like, it's a secret room. Because I want to know, does this secret room that I'm not supposed to know that you have, but because we're best friends, you told me that you have, does the secret room, by chance, lead to a bat cave? If, it, if you can't tell me that, that's okay. Maybe it leads to a man cave. Or a she shed. It's Mother's Day. I had to... Or... And if it does this, I mean, we need to talk. Does it lead to somewhere where I can take a nap? <laughs> when I was growing up, we would visit my grandmother in North Carolina, and her um, across-the-street neighbor was, uh, had bought some land still very close to her house on the same street and was building a new house. And we would go over and see Uncle Terry's house and um, go inside. And he was, uh, everything was framed in and he had drywall up, but it was still uh, pretty rough on the inside. And he let me go upstairs um, to, the, to the second floor of the house and took me inside the closet and showed me there was a bookshelf that was a false bookshelf and it opened up to another room behind it. I was in love. I didn't ever want to leave. Like I wanted to just get a sleeping bag and tuck up in there. I wanted a secret door. I don't know why. I don't know where it came from. Maybe it was the old Adam West Batman shows. Maybe it was Zorro with the secret door behind the fireplace. Maybe it was because if you knew where the door was, you were special. And everybody that I saw who went through secret doors could become someone different and escape the world that they were in in favor of something more and greater. Maybe it wasn't the secret door. Maybe it was what was on the other side 
that I was so enchanted by. Whatever it was, it still remains to this day a deep source of curiosity and wonder for me. Our text this morning talks about learning a secret. So let's stand and hear God's word from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Hear God's word. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In every and any circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Beloved, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes that we may see, our ears that we may hear, and our hearts that we may understand. Would you shoot a a straight shot through a a crooked arrow, even as me? For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Here's the first thing I want you to see. Paul says it. True contentment is a secret. True contentment is a secret. Verse 12, Paul says, I have learned the secret about facing plenty and what? Now, here's the thing about secrets, right? First of all, the thing about secrets is that um, they aren't obvious. They're known to a few, but not to everyone. So one of the things that you need to understand straight away about contentment is that contentment, how one gets to contentment, is not going to be obvious. Okay? Contentment is not going to be obvious. It's it's not going to be readily noticed by common sense. That's that's what makes a secret door a secret door, right? It's not immediately obvious to you that it's there in front of you. You have to know something about the architecture or the design of the place in order to have it. So let's also uh, acknowledge another truth about secrets. Whenever my wife and I talk about something around our kids that is a surprise, um, they, oh, how do I say this, lose their ever-loving minds to know what it is that we're talking about and find out exactly what it is that is being withheld from them. They want to know. They want to know. Um, and contentment is, is something like that. 
at the core of all people, we long for it. It's as if the universe whispered a secret around us. We know that there's something out there that's supposed to offer contentment to us. We don't know what it is. And so we go on a, on a journey to try and discover what contentment is because it always feels like it has eluded us in some way. It always feels like it's just outside of our grasp. It's like someone who would play that prank of putting a $100 bill down on the sidewalk and attach some clear fishing line to it. And the closer you get to it, it goes a little bit further down the road. No matter how hard they work, they can't seem to get to the thing that would offer contentment to them. Have you ever wondered why that is? Have you ever wondered why the thing that seems like it would bring us the most contentment, the most relief, the most satisfaction, always seems to be the thing that is surrounded by the most angst and toil and trouble and frustration? Right? All you wanted was a happy Mother's Day morning and your kids to bring you a beautiful breakfast in bed. I don't think that that's a thing, by the way. I don't think that anybody wants breakfast in bed. Maybe you do. And maybe you do want to go see what was done to your kitchen whilst you slept. I don't know. Maybe you just wanted one night where you didn't fight with your spouse. Maybe you just wanted one day at work where it didn't seem like your job was out to crush your very soul. Maybe it was that vacation that was supposed to be just like it is on the television, and it was anything but. Contentment always seems to elude us. Well, here's part of why that is. It's a funny thing about how the human heart works. Because the things in this world, they, they are fantastic things. I had someone um, email me last week after the sermon, and I talked about um, idolatry, and I talked about things that can uh, turn into substitutes for God. And they said, so basically, are you telling me that everything I enjoy is going to be an idol? Not necessarily, but hey, repentance is a thing, right? Here's how that works. Here's how that ties in. All the good stuff in this world arouses desire in us, but all the things in this world are not the things that can satisfy desire. Think about that. All the things in this world, even the good things, even the best things, even the most noble and beautiful and lovely of things in this world, all the things in this world can arouse desire, except nothing in this world can actually satisfy that desire. That's the part that gets us tripped up. Our marriage, our parenting, our careers, all awaken in us deep desire. We are a desiring people, by the way. We're not brains with sticks attached to them. We are feeling, loving, emotive, desiring people. We are made in God's image to be be animated and motivated by, by what we love and by what we desire. 
We don't just think, therefore we are. I'm sorry, Descartes. It's just not the way it is. We were made to be animated by what we love the most. And all of these good things that exist in our world are, in fact, good gifts that can animate, they can arouse, they can enliven our desire. But they can't satisfy it. And therein lies the rub. Why do we do this? We, we sang about it in part this morning. We are prone to wander. We are a people who, who don't set out um, seeking to be in utter rebellion, but we're also a people who don't know what to do with desire that can't be satisfied. Have you ever gotten an itch that you can't scratch? It's infuriating. I'll sometimes, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go up to a wall or a door jam and do the, the bear thing because, I don't know, it, it's just what we do, right? Because we can't stand to have an itch that can't be scratched and we can't stand to have a desire that can't be satisfied. And it's the things that give us the most joy it's the things that we want the most that have the, the ability to make us the most furious, that have the ability to make us the most um, frustrated. When we want to feel like we're not failures, the things that make us feel like failures infuriate us. When we want to feel lovely, the things that make us feel unlovely infuriate us. And so we chase and we chase and we knock on walls and doors. We're like the people in a, have you ever been to an escape room before? It's the, this, this new corporate team building trend. Gone are the days of trust falls. Now are the days of escape rooms. Which let's be clear, I don't know which one seems like a fate more worse than death to be like a team building exercise, but that's fine. Um, do I want to close my eyes and fall back into you know, Janet's arms from home, human resources or do I want to be trapped in a room with a timer? and not knowing how to escape. I don't know. But it's like people that are in escape rooms. We're knocking on doors, trying to find the right sequence of events, the right steps to achieve our escape, to achieve our satisfaction, to achieve contentment. But then Paul, Paul says something that challenges our very core of our being. Whatever contentment is, whatever you think it is, it's not. It's going to fly in the face of common sense. It isn't obvious, and it's going to infuriate us because it's going to, our desire will be aroused, and yet we can't find it. Our deepest desire, the thing that we were made for, is God himself. Paul's saying that in the midst of financial hardship he faced, you can see in verses 10 and 11, right? This is a thank you letter to the Philippian church. People that are under house arrest are responsible for footing their own bill, for the room that they're in, for the food that they get. He's saying, thank you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly uh, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now, next week we'll talk a little bit more about the gift and the giver. But Paul's saying that he learned, he learned the secret. But before we can talk about um, the secret that he learned, 
um, we have to talk about how false contentment tends to get revealed, okay? Look, this is the second point I want you to see. I want you to see the things that reveal false contentment. Paul actually talks about them here because he gives you the two extremes, the two polarities, the two opposites that God used in him to help him learn the secret of contentment, okay? He says in verse, uh, in verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, okay? So lack can teach us the secret to contentment, but so can plenty, but not in the way you think, okay? So when I am talking to people, trying to give them an idea, especially when I'm, um, especially when I'm uh, uh, doing pastoral care and counseling with people and trying to help them um, understand where they are now versus where God desires them to be. Um, these uh, four phrases help them kind of plot themselves on a graph. People start out unconsciously incompetent. They don't know that they don't know, right? They move then to consciously incompetent. Well, at least I know that I don't know. They move then to consciously competent. I really have to work on it, but I'm working at doing the right thing, and eventually, unconscious competence, I finally have internalized the right thing, and it's like breathing. I can just kind of move and go and do it, okay? Most of us as human beings begin our life as unconsciously incompetent as to what is going to bring us fulfillment and contentment. We start out being quite sure, by the way, that we know. We're quite sure that we know. And then we pursue those dreams. It's the right something, whatever that something is. And at some point in your life, you got that blank filled in for you. It's the right spouse. It's the right car. It's the right kids. It's the right zip code. It's the right career. It's the right dress. It's the right um, you know, promotion. It's whatever the right something is, right? We begin pursuing that thing because it's obvious. That's what we were made for. We were made to be successful. We were made to be uh, competent. We were made to be all the things. So we go pursuing those things. Because we don't think contentment is a secret at all. Right? Give me one of these. There you go. We don't think contentment is a secret at all. We think it's right there in front of us, right for the taking. And that's when you talk about there being a secret to contentment, that it is learned and not obvious, that people look at you like you have another head growing out of the side of your face. Because for them, it's very obvious. But then something comes along that brings us from a state of unconscious incompetence to a state of awareness. Conscious incompetence. At least we know that we, that we don't know. Paul says there are a couple things in this life that can expose our foolishness and bring those hard lessons about. And they're plenty in want. Have you ever wondered why the traditional marriage vows... Talk about committing to be together in both plenty and in want. Because these are the things that can be like bubble bursters. These are the occasions that can make our worlds fall apart. Our contentment, assurance vanish like vapor and cause our hearts to want to find a reason for this mistreatment and misery. 
So um, Heinrich Ibsen, in his play The Wild Duck, which premiered in 1884, has one of his characters say this line. I thought this was fascinating. Here's what he says. If you take the life lie, if you take the life lie from an average man, you take away his happiness as well. Now, that's pretty profound, isn't it? If you take the thing that's been your animating reason to get up in the morning and you take it away, you take away his happiness as well. How many of you felt that when you lost a job or when you were fired or when you had a sudden career change or a sudden health incident come that radically reshaped your life? How many of you experienced that moment of that gut punch of having the air knocked out of you when all of a sudden life stopped working the way you thought it was supposed to work? As soon as adversity shows up to completely dethrone the lie that you've built your life around, you'll see your happiness crumble with it. How did Paul learn the secret to contentment? He faced both plenty and want, abundance and need. But how does plenty, how does plenty reveal that you need contentment? Well, maybe understand, we maybe understand how want would, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. But how does plenty reveal um, this about our hearts? How does plenty seem to burst our bubble? Some of you are thinking to yourself, I would like to try, honestly, to give plenty a chance to burst my bubble for funsies. See, most of us will likely never achieve um, the status of plenty, right? We have enough, but never really enough. We have enough to to whet our appetites, but our plenty still seems like it's out of reach. Um, So look at the lives of those who do have plenty. And what do you see? What do you see? Well, ripped through the headlines and the pages of the Hollywood tabloids are marriages that have fallen apart of people who had seemingly everything. They get divorced. They commit suicide. And there's always a sense of sadness and bewilderment that washes over us when we find out that a famous, well-off person has ended their life or done something to completely ruin what they had. Why would they do that? You had everything. The realization came that they had it all and they had nothing. It's this quote that the actor Jim Carrey said recently. He said, I think that everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. But that's not going to be the thing that's going to burst most of our bubbles. Most of us have our bubbles burst by the frustration of not getting everything. We have our bubbles burst by the frustration of being denied everything we wanted, no matter how hard we worked. Because wasn't that what they told you? Work hard and you can achieve your dream. A little bit of effort, a lot of exertion. What does it give you? 
can't tell you how many times and how many people that I've asked some version of this question to. Did you ever, in your wildest dreams, ever envision that your life would actually end up here? That you would be sitting in some pastor's office in some suburb of Texas when everything that you thought was going to bring you satisfaction and contentment did nothing of the sort and you found yourself without options and with a deep sense of sadness. Want creates no illusions. Want exposes reality. Want exposes that we are poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Want is the aspiring yet losing. C.S. Lewis, in that oft-quoted passage of his, says this about desire. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. If I find myself in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a copy or echo or mirage. I must keep, in, keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find until after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others do the same. I wonder if Lewis was reading Paul. So then, how is true contentment learned? How is true contentment learned? Third point. The stark reality of the passage is that you don't know. It's not something you just discover and you take a pill and your eyes get opened. It's something that has to be learned. Because before you can learn contentment, you have to unlearn all the things that weren't bringing you contentment. You have to learn discontentment before you can learn true contentment. As C.S. Lewis said, you don't, actually, um, you don't actually want to give up on these things in this world that arouse desire, but you also, on the other hand, hold intention that you never want to mistake the things in this world that are arousing desire for the thing which those things are an echo, a mirage, a copy of. 
There's a strange word that Paul uses here for I have learned. It only occurs once in the New Testament. It occurs here, and it brings with it this idea of I have been initiated. I've been initiated. One of the um, funny little tidbits that we learned in uh, music history was that um, Mozart was a, uh, was a Freemason. Okay, he was part of the, the, the Freemasons. And when he wrote his opera, The Magic Flute, um, because he'd been initiated in the, into Freemasonry, one of the things he did just to thumb his nose at all the Illuminati and all the things is he worked out all of the rhythms to the Freemason secret knocks into the rhythm of the, uh, of the orchestration to the magic flute. What a guy. Just because he could. This word of I have been initiated. Paul takes a word that would have been associated with cults and mystery religions and sanitizes it and now makes a stark claim with it that the Jesus of Nazareth, the Nazarene, the one whom was crucified, the one who was raised, the one who was ascended, the one who has poured out his spirit, the one who has, um, the one who has converted the, the, the Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, to the apostle Paul, the champion for the Gentiles. That Jesus is the one who initiated Paul and showed him the secret to contentment. He took a private word for private cults and made a, a public word for a public gospel. All the hardship that Paul experienced, all the highs and the lows, all the things that were chipping away at his heart to reveal its true focus, all these things were what were working on Paul to reveal to him where his satisfaction really lied. And it was learning to be contentedly discontented. What Lewis said, that we were made for another world. What this world shows us by disillusioning us and disappointing us is this. We can enjoy the world, but we can't expect this world to provide us what we need or want. We can be sad and disappointed, and we don't have to be crushed because we feel like our only shot at happiness and contentment is gone forever. We were at dinner last night with some friends and we were talking about things that might be on our bucket list. Bucket lists are a fun idea, right? Some things that you want to do. But you know where those things, those lists originated from, right? What do I need to get done before I kick the right? Because this world's all I got and this life is all I got. So how do I find all the satisfaction that I can wring out of this world before I go. What this does, what this secret to contentment does for us is it frees us to be fully present in a moment. Because here's the thing, as soon as you realize, wow, I'm really content right now, the next thing that you're going to realize is, wow, this meal or this idea or this vacation is going to be gone soon. 
It's the feeling you get when you get to the last French fry. <laughs> that was Jim Gaffigan's line. It wasn't mine, but I thought it was really funny. You can be present in a moment. You can enjoy it and know that it won't last. Awakened desire points us to the one who can only and truly satisfy it. We are neither called to worship things or abstain from them. As my friend asked me, are everything that I'm enjoying going to be an idol? Maybe. Repent and go back to enjoying them in their proper place and in their proper context. Paul says in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Whether I have this great moment of satisfied desire, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Whether I am facing um, poverty and sadness and disillusionment and want, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. For it is neither the plenty nor is it the want that points to us to our true happiness. It's Jesus. It's Jesus that points us to our true happiness because he is the one that is our true happiness. And this is a process. It's learning. And much to my daughter's disappointment, we can't have birthday cake every day. But if you offer her birthday cake, you better darn well be ready to produce it. Or you'll have an angry two-and-a-half-year-old. We must learn what we don't know and continue to work at it. We have to exert energy and effort. And at the same time of the process being a discipline, it's also a dependence. It is a dependence. It's a daily reliance. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There is nothing that we can do apart from him. I told you that my deepest yearning whenever I walk into a new place is to find a secret door. Because my hope is that it would allow me to transform, to become like a superhero, or maybe just find a place to rest. The journey that this promise of Scripture offers to us is just that. It is transformation. It is rest. It is to become who you were made to be and to find rest in the embrace of the one who made you that way. But it isn't hidden. It's right here. It's Jesus. So the question is, are you tired enough of being frustrated that you're willing to give up and get well? Because it's not an easy road, but it's an essential one. Are you dissatisfied with the world? Are you ready to find your hope and your satisfaction in him? From scratch. And so gilded cattle and kings just like all the other nations and prophets that would tell us what we wanted to hear, but you kept pursuing us. You kept coming after us. And then the Nazarene came, born of a woman, born under the law, born to redeem those under the law. He sent Jesus to ransom us and rescue us and redeem us and restore us and one day resurrect us. And he didn't bring him to kill our desire, but to find desire's ultimate contentment and satisfaction.
So Holy Spirit, we need your help while we still wander around by grace until grace and faith is turned to sight. We need your help so that this Jesus would ruin us for everything else this world has or could offer. We ask you, Spirit, to transform these elements. And as we receive them by faith, we find our hearts full with Christ. Hear us now, O Father, as we pray that prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray together, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Dear friends, this table is not the table of Metrocrest, nor is it the table of the PCA. It's the Lord's table. It's especially appropriate for me today to give instruction about the table in this way. I think there's a very good chance that right now, if we were to have a conversation, you could tell me all of the things that secretly in your heart of hearts you have been chasing, that you have been hoping would offer you satisfaction and contentment. And I bet if we had a little bit longer, we could also have a really honest conversation about the fact that none of those things are working out quite as you had hoped. And I bet if we were really, really, really being honest, part of you is just kind of wondering, is this all this world has? And if that's you, if that description fits you, then my encouragement this day is run, don't walk to the Lord's table. Come and feast with Jesus and ask him for grace to get through today. You're a forgetful people, but he loves to remind you. You're a half-hearted people, but he loves your heart. You come and ask him for grace and help, not hoping that your contrition will make him think good thoughts about you. You come to him for grace and help because he has accepted you, because he has loved you, because he has said, you're mine and I'm yours and I'm never going to let you go. That's why you come for grace and help. If you're not a Christian, these things don't save you. They point to the one who does. So instead of receiving the elements, receive the one to whom the elements point. Receive Jesus, because that's the thing. He's the one that can only ever truly satisfy you. And it's a learned process. So if you haven't done a very good job of learning this week, come to Jesus. If you haven't done a very good job of remembering this week, come to Jesus. If you just learned today that you're not in him at all, skip this. Come to Jesus. In just a moment, we'll uh, serve in this manner. Uh, I'll invite all who are able to come down front. Um, the run thing was a metaphor. Don't push and shove. That's not cool. We'll serve here, here, and here. 
take the elements, return to your seat, hold them until we've all been served, and then we'll eat together. Okay?